from a bit further down in London <laughs> to share his experience, strength and hope with us this evening. Over to you, Larry. Thank you. Thanks, Claire. Thanks very much. Yeah, my name's Larry. I'm an alcoholic. Um, and some of this uh, disreputable bunch I see before me, I have known for, for quite a long time and have heard me speak endlessly in the past. So uh, I, I have absolutely no idea what will come out of my mouth or how it will come out of my mouth. But as I said to Monica earlier, that's, that's not in my hands. I, I give that to, to the God of my understanding and whatever comes out, comes out. Um, I was just thinking to myself, because as chapter five, as Karen was going through chapter five there, I could feel the butterflies, you know, the angst, um, just starting in here. And I'm looking at this bank of faces. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, it is, it is an utter miracle that I am able to do this, that I can sit here, never mind that I'm not actually physically present, in a meeting that I can sit here, open my mouth and talk to, talk to you in any way, shape or form is a bloody miracle. It really, really is. It took me a hell of a long time um, to open my mouth in this fellowship. Um, I don't think I said a single word other than to give my name for about a year in these rooms. And, and the person that forced me to open my mouth uh, and to give me, uh, to, I, I had to say, yeah, I, okay. Uh, I, um, let's go back, uh, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Um, I, you know, uh, I might be a bit disjointed, a little bit all over the place, but once I get going, I'll, I'll get going. It's, I think what I was trying to say is that uh, for a very long time in these rooms, I was always the very last into the meeting. I always stayed by the door, never spoke to anybody, and ran out early. Um, and usually, um, I was in a bit of a panic attack, you know? Not, not a major full-blown one, but the palms would be sweaty, the sweat would be under the, you know, just head racing, heart thumping, and it was like that for a very long time. And I suppose the reason I bring it up is that... Uh, Going to meetings for me was, was truly uh, a difficult, difficult, difficult thing. And, and I have not forgotten the nightmares uh, that I used to go through, trying to get, just, just coming, coming to meetings. And today, I suppose what I want to say, I haven't been to a live meeting for quite a long time. Like most of us, I've been under lockdown for six months. So I haven't been to live meeting for a while. But I don't take it for granted the fact that I can kind of breeze into any meeting today, and I do, without actually batting an eyelid. And I no longer breeze in uh, late. I'm usually at least 10, 15, 20 minutes early. I have no difficulty talking to people. I can share, I can open my mouth, and I feel okay. And I don't take that for granted because it was a bloody nightmare. It wasn't like that to begin with. Um, what it was like, well, I, I was poured into this fellowship. Um, it wasn't my choice. I didn't come here of my own volition. It wasn't my idea at all, actually. It was part of the deal. I was poured in via um, what was a very high-class nuthouse. And um, as others have heard me say, I started in a very nice high-class nuthouse, and I worked my way down. Um, I, long time ago, um, uh, well, let's go back even further. 
Uh, a lot of my story, uh, anybody that knows me has heard me drone on endlessly for years about fear. And, um, I, you know, I can't, the book says it, that evil and corrosive thread, our lives are shot through with it. Well, that's the story of my life, really. It, it was an evil and corrosive thread. I, you know, the, the, I don't really know how else to describe it. It's, I know that some of you've heard me say this many times, but I don't know how else uh, to, to explain it. You know, in A Vision for You, it talks about the four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. Well, those four guys didn't suddenly land on my shoulder as a result of years and years of heavy drinking. It wasn't like that for me. Those four guys were, were, I was on intimate terms with all of them long before I picked up a drink, long before I picked up a drink. Terror and bewilderment was my kind of default setting from the moment I came into this world. And I share this, I share it because it's a reminder. Uh, it's something that can still happen to me today if I get very, very anxious. But, but it's important to, for me to remember um, I mean, the, the first memory that I have in my life, and also, by the way, I, I've come across, I've heard, I have met people in this fellowship that had very similar experiences to mine as well along the way. So it's part of my story and it, uh, it, it's a reminder. My first visit to a psychiatrist was at the age of five. And um, I remember that. That's the very first memory that I actually have in my life is being dragged into a psychiatrist's office by my mother. Um, at the age of five. I had a problem at that time, and the problem was that I couldn't control my hands. My hands used to shake very violently, really violently, to the point that I couldn't grasp things. If anybody put anything in my hand, I'd drop it, or I was shaking all over the place, and I couldn't control them. Um, so my parents, I, I was put through virtually every medical test uh, they knew of in existence at that time. And eventually they came to the conclusion that there was nothing wrong with me physically, physically whatsoever, that it must be uh, an emotional, whatever it was. Um, so I was hauled in to see this shrink. Um, and so right from the get-go, you know, the old thing that you hear a million times in these rooms, feeling special, feeling different, not the same as, you know, uh, that was there from, from very early on for me. Plus, I always knew that there's something not quite right. When everybody else is going to school, my mother used to take me to school and uh, the headmistress would be standing there by the door with a bucket and a mop because every morning without fail, I'd walk in and throw up every single morning. So I share this only because um, it, it's indicative of, uh, for me, uh, I wasted a lot of time when I got here. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't waste any, it's been years since I've, I've, I've thought about it at all because it really doesn't matter. But I wasted a lot of time trying to figure out why I was an alcoholic and what happened and who, actually, uh, I, I couldn't tell you when I last thought about it. But the reality for me is that, 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 that this illness was there for, from the get-go uh, and the progression was, was fast. So when I, discovered, uh, when I discovered alcohol, I was about 12 years old, and uh, that first drink for me was an extraordinary experience because what it did for me, it stopped me shaking for the first time in my life. I took that drink and I didn't shake. And for the first time ever, I felt comfortable inside my own skin. And actually, it stopped me shaking for a very long time. 
Uh, and then, of course, eventually I drank so much of the damn stuff that the shakes came back. Um, but the point about it was I didn't really care. So when a vision, a vision for you, uh, it, begins, uh, it begins with, uh, you know, for most normal folk, drinking means conviviality, companionship, colorful image. It's release from care, boredom and worry. It's joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good. Well, that's not my drinking. It didn't start that way. It didn't end that way, that is for sure. And it won't like that in the middle either. Uh, for me, it was, it, was, it was medicine. And, um, you know, this illness, as I've learned, um, this illness demands treatment. It will be treated one way or another. And for a long time, alcohol did for me what I could not do for myself. I, the consequences were very... Uh, I got into a lot of trouble almost immediately. So, all right, I picked up that drink at the age of 12, 13. And I stopped shaking, but um, I was arrested almost the first that the first, first drink uh, that happened to me. And as happened with many of us, um, you know, that first time, the terror, the fear, the, you know, first time in my life locked up in a, in a police cell, wondering what the hell my father was going to do to me when he got hold of me, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, you know, as we know, and I can apply this to a million things that happened to me later on, the first time it happens, it's horrific and shaming, and it's never going to happen again. The second time, it's not quite so bad. The third, the fourth, the fifth, and eventually, it's an occupational hazard, and it's just something that happens. And the entirely unacceptable becomes acceptable. That's certainly what happened to me. But I was prepared to deal with the consequences, um, no matter how severe, because alcohol was my anesthetic. It was my anesthesia. It was the only way that I found to, 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 um, to, to deal with life. Um, and I tried, you know, I've heard it a million times, and, you know, and I had, I've always identified it, uh, with it. You know, it, it was... Uh, that feeling of being stuck behind this impenetrable force field, you know, there's this impenetrable force field around me and I couldn't get out and nothing could get in. Um, and uh, the only way I could live with that was, was alcohol and one or two other drugs, that, but that's neither here nor there. Alcohol was, was my thing. So, uh, you know, fear, when, when the book talks about, you know, <laughs> Far be it from me to, to argue with Bill, but when he talks about a hundred forms of fear and self-delusion, uh, I, I, I always smile to myself, and never mind a hundred, multiply that by about a million and you're getting close. Um, you know, this was my life, it was absolute fear. And um, I, um, what would I say? Yeah, uh, I, well, I was up and running. And by the time I hit, uh, let's say, 17, late teens, 17 and 18, uh, I was in serious trouble and there were various hospitalizations. Uh, but uh, be that as it may, I eventually wound up in this very nice, uh, very high class nut house uh, in London. And um, at the ripe old age of, well, I just, it was just before my 22nd birthday, actually, in 1984. And um, I was locked up in this place and I was told that uh, part of the deal was I had to go to an AA meeting. So I went to my very, very first AA meeting and it was held 
in a porter cabin in the garden at the back of this place. And uh, I walked into this room and um, what I remember about it was rage, resentment, anger. Um, I just, how could they put me in this room with these people? What, what the hell? Don't they know who I am? Who the hell? What am I? And I looked around the room and there were about 25 odd people in there. And the closest in age to me was probably 20, maybe 25, 30 years older than me. I looked in this room and there were guys that had no hair or they were bald or they had gray hair, bunch of old men, no, no women present at all. And I just sat there and I raged, you know, completely uh, escaped my notice that particular night that the reason that I was there in the first place was because I drunk myself into this place. Um, but anyway, uh, that was the beginning of my journey in this fellowship. And I met a man that night who I was to spend years uh, plotting to kill. Um, I mean, years. I hated the man with a passion. Um, this guy, he, he, was, he was doing the chair at that very first meeting. I mean, this is a bloody long time ago, but he was doing a chair at, at that very first meeting and what he did was he, he had a terrible habit of taking over meetings. And when he finished his chair, he suddenly chimed up. I mean, remember, he pointed this bony little finger at me and singled me out. You, you there. Who are you? I've never seen you before. Um, this was Mr. Magoo. As I, I mean, it was a, a little Irish leprechaun um, who had glasses that were like that thick. Um, and very gentle Irish built, and I hated this man. I mean, and, and the only crime that he committed that particular night is he forced me to 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 speak and to give my name. So um, anyway, cut a long story short, with this particular individual, I could not get away. Every meeting I went to, certainly every meeting in the nut house, uh, every other meeting I went to, he was always there. I couldn't get away from him. So I used to start playing stupid. I thought, right, okay, he's always in North London. If I go to West London, he won't be there. So I'd go to meetings in West London and avoid North London. He was always there. So then I'd cross the river, which for those that know London, I mean, for a North London to cross to South London is akin to going over to China. You know, it's a foreign country. But I'd go over to South London and he was always there. No matter what I did or where I went, so I then spent a good few years uh, sitting in meetings, um, fantasizing about how this guy was going to die, which window, which window I was going to throw him out of, how I was going to run him over. What I cannot tell you how many times I killed the guy. Um, and to cut a long story short, you know the story. Eventually, he became my sponsor, of course. Um, and uh, you know. To, I didn't, my, my uh, spiritual experience um, has been one of the excruciatingly slow educational variety. So uh, Pax, when Pax showed me this thing, you know, imperfectly perfect, or sorry, perfectly imperfect, um, it's very appropriate because I, I would suggest, I, I, I would suggest there are two things one can be in this fellowship. You can either be an example um, or you can be a warning and I would think that in much of my AA life I have been a warning as opposed to an example because I at every step along the way have done all the wrong things even when I didn't want to do them 
Um, so you know that you all know the perversity of an alcoholic. Uh, I, I remember being told in my early days, you know, Larry, perhaps it'd be a very good idea for, for you not to get involved in a relationship in the first year. So, so I hadn't even thought about getting involved in a relationship. I wasn't looking at girls at that point. But just because somebody said to me, it's not a very good idea, the first thing I did was went out and found myself the nearest. And of course, I was a very sick boy. So anybody come, you know, and it was catastrophic. And I found out firsthand why they suggested maybe it's not such a good idea in the first, first little while. Um, and, and that kind of sums up my... It sort of sums up my, my route through recovery. It's not been an easy journey. And um, the other thing is that, that um, I was introduced to the fellowship via this wonderful nut house. And my first incarceration, I was locked up there for six weeks. And I promise you, I spent every single day of those six weeks kicking and screaming and trying to get out of this place. I mean, I anything and everything to get out of it and then of course came the day where they said to me right you had enough of you bugger off um and the fear the fear that hit um uh, people have heard me uh, share this before but, it, but it's absolutely true having spent six weeks trying to get out of this place i then i i i left of course i went to the nearest off license and was then found unconscious under a rose bush in the garden of this nut house, having been, I was trying to break back in. Well, this is not normal behavior. You, you know, normal people don't, don't really behave like this. But anyway, the point I want to make is that, that um, I really, really struggled. And um, I wasn't at that time, uh, I mean, I, what can I tell you? I, I was 21. Uh, 21, 22, um, a friend of mine at that time, I had a habit, anytime anybody said anything to me, I would, the sentence that would come back would always begin, I know but, every sentence, I know but, I know but. And um, I remember one day, uh, a friend of mine at that time, very patient, I don't know why she was having anything to do, literally just turned on me one day and screamed at me, no, no, that's just it idiot you don't know a damn thing until you realize you don't know a damn thing you're never ever going to get sober and um my response to that was what's her problem i thought there was something wrong with her she said what's the matter with her um but it is true it was all i know but and I, you know uh, people have heard me say that that um it's a funny thing when i got here i seemed to know absolutely everything and every sentence began i know but However many years later, every sentence usually begins, I haven't got a bloody clue, help. Um, and maybe that's partly to do with age, um, but I think it's also uh, a lot more to do with, with finally um, getting sober and doing a little bit of growing up. That same friend of mine that, that screamed at me about, I know, but, um, once said to me, also uh, shouting at me, you know, uh, 22 years of age, walking around like a 122-year-old with a mental age of a three-year-old. And you know what? Again, I thought she had the problem, but she was about right. Um, I, I really had no clue. Um, 
I, I just, you know, the how to play the game was missing. And uh, as I said, the, the, the only thing I really knew in my life was, um, well, the four horsemen. I'm back to those guys again. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. My, my actually, one of the things that I did, and um, I have to say that my story, I didn't get sober, come in, and that was the end of it. I kept going back out and I kept getting in the ring. And, um, you know, I, I would stay sober for a couple of days, then I'd be drunk again. I'd stay sober for, for a week and then I'd be drunk again. And um, it, uh, it wasn't an easy journey. And um, along the way, um, some of the people that I was very close to um, didn't survive and weren't as fortunate as me. I ended up in more dry houses, treatment centers, and whatever else than I care to remember. And in fact, it's very difficult for me, for, for me to remember. And I say all this, but the, the reason I say it is because I very quickly realized, because I heard people sharing in the rooms, and I knew, I mean, as soon as people started talking about And one other thing that I, I, through all the denial and all the madness that was in me, right at the very beginning, one of the very, very first meetings I was at was a step meeting. And I heard a sentence, one sentence, uh, you know, step five, uh, sorry, uh, chapter five meant nothing. Nothing I heard meant anything very much. But somebody, I was in this step meeting and they read that wonderful sentence. Um, the primary fact that we fail to recognize is our total inability to talk, form a true partnership with another human being. Now, bearing in mind, I was, what was I, 22 probably when I heard that for the first time. I, for me, through all the denial and everything else, I, that, was, that was aimed at me because I, I had never formed any kind of relationship really with another human being and I knew it. I absolutely knew it. And uh, it was like a bit, for me, it was a bit like being caught in the crosshairs of a rifle. I, I, I know for each of us it's different things, but I heard that sentence and my life is never quite the same ever again. Um, I, you know, I could accept, I understood, I recognized what you, I, I, I identified with a lot of what was being said around me, the feelings and everything else. But there was that little bit of me, I, I don't know, whether it's arrogance or, or I mean, no doubt, right at the, at the bottom of it was, was fear, which was the drive. I mean, it is a fear-based stillness. Um, and it was the primary sort of driver, if you like, of, of, of me and all my defects. Uh, but I clung on. If I couldn't be the best of the best, then I was going to be the worst of the worst. So, yeah, I'm like you, but I'm much sicker than you are. I'm much, much sicker than you. You don't realise. I've had all this issue. And I, I mean, it's only with hindsight and I look back now that, that uh, as long as I hung on to that and as long as I kept feed, telling myself that, yeah, but I'm, yeah, I'm like you, but I mean, it was just tiny 0.5 or 1% of me that hung on to, I'm a bit sick of it, you know, I've got these other problems and you don't really, all I was doing was just keeping the door open to, to, to going back out. Um, and I did go back out. And every time I got, went back out, um, it was absolutely horrific. Um, and eventually, uh, I got a bit fed up with this. Uh, I really did because uh, I, I was in, you know, the consequences were, were bad to begin with for me, but they were getting a lot worse. So eventually I thought, right, look, I've never given this a real go, isn't it? Let's just, just you know, let's just, for once in your life, listen, commit, and let's see what happens. So, um, 
At that time, I was living in a dry house, actually, over in, uh, I've got, Pax, my, Pax, give me a, if I'm waffling on, you have to give me a nudge and tell me to shut up. But uh, anyway, I, I'm living over in a dry house, yeah, yeah, in the Davies Centre, and I've got a clue what I'm doing, and I'm going to meetings, and this, that, and the other, and I've no idea where I'm going with my life, or, or, or what's happening, really. Um, and one day I went to a meeting uh, in Battersea, and I'm sitting in the meeting and uh, I chimed in, I was sharing and I was feeling very sorry for myself and worries me. No one's ever going to employ me. I've got no qualifications and I, you know, I, I left school with nothing because I was much too busy drinking and blah, blah, blah. Uh, anyway, a guy I had never seen before ever at that meeting and I never, ever saw again came up to me at the end of the meeting and he tapped me on the shoulder and I'm going to use the language that he used because I mean it just didn't. I'm going to tell you the response that it got. He just tapped me on the shoulder and he said, "He said to me, he said, did you ever think, buddy, that instead of sitting here whining like a fucking idiot, you could actually get off your effing ass and do something about it?" Um, now I didn't know who this guy was, and you don't talk to me like that. How dare! Who the hell do you think you are? So anyway, I'm, I'm walking back to my dry house, yet again plotting the murder of yet another member of the fellowship. Um, and I get halfway home and all of a sudden a light bulb comes on in my head and I suddenly think, hang on a minute, do you mean I could actually do something about this? Um, and it was like a blinding flash of light. You know, it, it never occurred to me that I could actually do something about it. Anyway, the following day, I walked into uh, uh, an adult education centre in Wandsworth, actually, of all places. I walked in, and there's a woman there behind the desk, and she said to me, what can I help you? you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to do a degree. And she said, oh, yes, um, what do you want to study? So I, this is in touch. I rattled off a list of about a dozen different degrees from law to medicine to this, that and the other. And I mean, I, you know, what I got back was a roll of the eyes and oh Christ, we've got a right one here. Look, can we just, just sit down? What qualifications have you got? And I said, none, none at all. And I didn't. Uh, anyway, the point being that that started a long journey. At that time I was what, 27, 27. And uh, that started a long journey. I went back to school, ended up going back to college, ended up going to a university that I was told I shouldn't apply to because I, I would never get in. I got in, I did my degree, I got an education. You know, and, but what I want to say about this is that, that I was very close to the fellowship all the time. Uh, I did a lot of meetings. Typical alcoholic, I couldn't do, you know, you can't do anything in moderation. So, I, you know, I have to do, there was a long period where I was doing like two meetings a day, sometimes three meetings a day. Um, but actually, uh, it's with hindsight, I didn't know it at the time. I, really what I was doing was ticking boxes. Uh, I was, I had a sponsor at the time. My first sponsor, the man I was talking about, Mr. Magoo, he... I learned actually, I learned a valuable lesson there because at one point um, I got a resentment. That man not only saved my life and scraped me up off the floor at a couple of meetings um, when I was in a really bad way physically, he also thrust up my, my family into Al-Anon and he had a lot to do with, with rescuing um, 
some of the fallout from my drinking. Um, but uh, I got a resentment. Um, don't ask me what it was. I just, uh, typical grown-up stuff, spat my dummy out and, and out the pram went to Teddy and I wouldn't speak to him for about three weeks. Um, and this is a man, by the way, uh, when he met me, I was homeless. And the only reason I had food in my stomach for a long while or a roof over my head was because he suffered to have me uh, living on his couch. Um, but I didn't really, I didn't understand and I didn't appreciate it. And anyway, years down the road, I, I got a resentment and I wouldn't return his calls for three weeks. And eventually when I got over myself, uh, I picked up the phone and uh, in the interim, he passed away. And um, until my dying day, that will be a regret, but it taught me uh, a, a, a very important lesson. Anyway, um, that was then. Um, because my life had been utterly dominated by alcohol from day one, of course, when I wasn't drinking, things got a hell of a lot better. So I'm going to a lot of meetings, I'm doing my course, I'm doing everything I need to do. Typical alcoholic, I can't have four or five or three or two commitments. I've got to have eight, nine, however many ridiculous commitments I had. And I finished my studies. I ended up, I was very lucky. I got a very good job and, um, you know, grown up stuff. Then I've got a mortgage, I've got a home. I've got a girlfriend, I've got a nice car, everything's going well, I'm eight years sober or whatever it was. Uh, I've got all these meetings going on. But as I said, I, and I had a sponsor, I never spoke to him, never phoned him, didn't need him, but I had a sponsor. So when you were talking about speaking to your sponsor, I could say, oh, I've got, I've got a sponsor as well. I could tick that box. And I was ticking boxes. I didn't know it. But what then happened was, and I've learned because I've seen it over a very, very long period of time. People don't, the longer people are around, sober and in the rooms, the longer the setup process uh, is or can be. People don't just go out after 20 years or 10 years and pick up just like that. I didn't. Um, what happened to me was, um, if you have eight commitments and you give one up, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because you've got seven other commitments. It really doesn't. But over a period of probably two years, those eight, seven commitments eventually became no commitments. And of course, as the story usually goes, when you don't have commitments, it gets easier not to turn up to the next meeting, doesn't it? So I won't go tonight. I'm really, really tired. I've had a really tough day at work. I know, I'll go tomorrow. The next night comes along. If I have to listen to that beep beep, say that one more effing time, I'm going to blow my brains out. Or his, what, I can't hear it again. I've heard it a million times. So I won't go tonight. I'll go to a different meeting the following night. And then I didn't go the following night. I know it's better. I'll go on the weekend. I'll feel better on Saturday. I won't be working and I'll be able to get to the meeting. And you know the story. Over time, and it didn't happen quickly, by the way, it was at first the drift, for me anyway, uh, was imperceptible. And I would imagine to those even close to me, it was imperceptible. But I drifted away and um, didn't even know it. And eventually came the day where I walked into a meeting, it was on a Saturday night, um, and it was a step meeting in Temple Fortune. I walked in, uh, I got a resentment towards the guy, uh, I hated the secretary anyway, uh, but I got a resentment towards the guy giving the chair. And I stood up halfway through the meeting and I had a nanosecond where I had to decide what I was gonna do. 
if I'd have moved forward, there would have been real trouble. Uh, and I decided to move back and to leave. And as I was walking out and meeting a friend of mine, and then he saw me, he was outside smoking a cigarette, and he put his hand on my chest and he said to me, whatever you do, do not leave this meeting. He said, I don't give a shit what you do. Go back in that room, deal with it. I don't care if you kill, whatever you do, do not leave the meeting. But I couldn't do it. I was gone and I knocked his hand away. Uh, and I walked. And I was out there for six years. And uh, I can only tell you, my drinking from day one, drink one, was virulently and viciously destructive right from the beginning. Uh, it really, really was. But I gotta tell you, the six years that followed made everything else uh, look like a picnic in the park. And only God knows how I survived those years. And in the end, I only survived it because he stripped me various body I mean literally physically I was at death's door through this illness and of course in a heartbeat there was no there was no cars there were no girlfriends there was no homes there was no anything uh, there was just the horrors of uh, this illness back again and um, I'd accepted that, that that was the trouble with this wretched bloody illness is it doesn't kill you quickly it keeps you alive tortures you if you're lucky it gets you quickly and then you know unfortunately uh, along the way, some very close, some people I love very much, even going back to when I was 21, 22, didn't make it. Uh, you know, somehow or other, God chose to keep me alive and he gave me another chance. And I was able, by some miracle, to get back here. Uh, some of you know, um, some of you will have known Norma, um, God lover, Norma from, from Barnet here. Um, I mention her name because... I probably wouldn't be here tonight, but for her. Um, I crawled back uh, on all fours to this fellowship and I really, I'd made up my mind that, that it was the end for me. But I walked into a meeting on a Wednesday night and she was there and uh, she was the secretary of the meeting. And um, it breaks my heart that she's not with us anymore, but I really owe her my life because the welcome that I got from her, she had been a close friend beforehand. And I really, really loved that woman. I really did. And um, it's a terrible thing. She died far too young from a dreadful, dreadful disease, hateful cancer, 54 years old she died. Um, but, but for her, she, and she was responsible for me staying at that meeting and coming back. Uh, I wouldn't be alive today. There is no way. Um, so, you know, that's, that, that's, I hope, I, I, I would never, you know something, before I picked up that last drink, uh, if you'd have asked me if I was going to drink again, right up probably until about 30 seconds before I did pick up that first drink, I would have probably said, no, you're joking. I'm not going to drink again. Um, you asked me today, the answer is going to be, no, not today. I won't have a drink today. Tomorrow, who the hell knows? And given my track record, you know, I would never say never. Today I am sober. Today I am grateful. Today I have, uh, I hope, um, put enough in the bank to keep me sober this day. Um, who knows about tomorrow? Um, You know, it's, it's, it's uh, as I said, it's been a, a very uh, long 
um, educational, uh, spiritual experience. It's, it's, you know, it's taken a lot of years. I mean, uh, you know, now I'm the one with the gray hairs and, and I'm nearly, nearly 60 now, for God's sake. Whereas when I got here, I was a child. Um, and as I said, today, more often than not, my mantra is, um, I really don't know, I haven't got a clue, help. And whether that's a, a sort of prayer to, to the God of my understanding or whether that's to one of you or to all of you, doesn't matter anymore. I can, I, I've never seen, uh, the self-loathing, the self-hatred of an alcoholic is like nothing else. I mean, the, the absolute self-hatred. And I hated everything about myself, most of all, uh, the fear, that all-consuming fear that I, I judged in a way, I judged myself in a way that I, I'm treated myself in a way, indeed, that I would never treat another human being. You know what? Today I stopped all that. I don't judge it. I, I thought today that um, I, I used to, I used to, I think that the, the, what I'm trying to say is that a lot of my recovery, a lot of what I do today is about dealing with my, containing that anxiety. You know what? I'm an anxious person. It doesn't make me good and it doesn't make me bad. It doesn't make me indifferent. What it does is it makes me an anxious person. And a lot of what I do is about containing that and dealing with that. Um, that's the reality. But it's never as crippling as it used to be. I don't have, when I talk about panic attacks, I mean, the other day I was sharing at a meeting. There was a time, I remember, uh, being crawling under a, a, a conference table in a boardroom with a telephone, trying to hide from everybody else because I was in a terrible panic. You know, mouth dry, lips dry, sweating, absolutely buckets, terrified, feeling like my heart's going to come out of my chest, shaking like a lift, absolutely head flying all over the place, feeling like I'm going to drop dead here any second. I'm under, a board, I'm under the table in a boardroom, I'm trying to do a job here, but I'm hiding under the table, trying to talk to my sponsor, who had the bloody nerve not to be in at the time. Um, and, you know, but you know, the funny thing about that was, I ended up phoning the number several times because his answer phone was on. And it was enough. I, I talked myself, or he talked me back down. He wasn't in, but it, uh, hearing his voice on the answer phone was, oh God, and I thought I was normal. Um, anyway, the point being that, that I accept, for the most part today, I accept that I am an anxious person. And it's okay. It's really okay. And the other thing I know, having got to, to this point in my life, it ain't going to kill me. I know it's not going to kill me. It might feel sometimes, but it's never as bad as it used to be. It never is. And I, I thank God, I, it's been a long time since I've had a full-blown panic attack. And I am grateful. There's a million things I, I probably should have said. I wish I'd said. Um, but one of the things, I'm going to say a big shout out for, for somebody who had a huge influence uh, on my recovery um, and who passed away recently, and that was good old Clancy that, that many of you will have heard on tapes. And Clancy, Clancy I um, from the Pacific Group, um, I, I had the good fortune uh, to meet him at a convention in Bristol 
uh, some years ago, and, and I still listen to his tapes because so much of what he said makes so much sense to me uh, and really spoke to me. And I get, um, for the, you know, he, he talked all the time about, uh, described alcoholism as disease of perception, of perspective, sorry, perspective. And that is so true. If I don't do what I need to do, if I don't come to my meetings, if I don't reach out to my fellow alcoholics, if I'm not here, if I don't, willpower, you know, willpower as we know will never, will never keep any of us away from a drink. But it does take a hell of a lot of willpower sometimes to take the book down from the shelf to get on the knees first thing in the morning and put the program into practice. That does take a real exertion of will because it ain't bloody easy to do. If it were, there'd be squillions of recovered alcoholics. Uh, it, it really isn't easy. Um, and one of the things I was saying the other day, which is entirely true, and I, you know, a lot of the time I'm not trying to convince any of you lot. I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to me. I'm trying to convince myself. Uh, and that is that, um, you know, it's, I've got to, it doesn't matter what I say. Every alcoholic I've ever met, and I've met millions of them at this stage, I really have, I couldn't tell you how many meetings, everyone I've ever met has the gift of the gap. Each one of us can talk our way into and out of just about anything. If we couldn't, we wouldn't be alive and we wouldn't survive. So we're all brilliant talkers, all of us. We have to be. The trouble is with this program and with this fellowship, fellowship, it doesn't bloody matter what I say. What I say actually is largely irrelevant. What matters is what I do. And one of the reasons that, that, that I, that Clancy, uh, I, won't, I won't read it, but one of the things that I loved about Clancy was he talked about something called pragmatic spirituality, and I'm going to shut up on this, uh, on this, uh, 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 on this, because I just think it's 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 a wonderful, wonderful thing. In fact, do you know what? I've got it here. I'm going to read it anyway. I don't care. Here it is. Um, this was something I picked up. The reason I love this is because I know from past experience, I can talk the talk very well. You only have to be around for a short while. You get the jargon, you can, you can spout the words. We're all very good at it, but it doesn't matter. It's as Andre said to me 36 years ago, Larry, don't tell me, show me, act. This is about action, it doesn't matter. Everything else is relevant. And one of the reasons I love, uh, Clancy used to talk about pragmatic spirituality and it fits into this and, and it's one of the reasons that I love it. You know, we always hear this thing, don't, don't, don't tell me you're grateful, show me. Now I've heard people professing incredible gratitude and saying how wonderful it all is and they're how grateful I'm mar and then I've asked them to do, or you ask them to do something and boom, you don't see them for dust. That's, that's, you know, that's an experience, that happens. So don't tell me, show me. And this I'm going to read. Uh, this is pragmatic spirituality, and I promise I'll shut up on this, because can I just say that there is a hugely important place for prayer and meditation. Step 11 is, uh, you know, one of the most important. Prayer and meditation is hugely important. But I've also sat in meetings when people have been spiritually floating on air and spiritual giants and this, that, and the other, and felt like I'm on a different planet altogether. You know, I really, in fact, I, 
I remember once they have a higher class of alcoholic in Chelsea, you know, in some parts of London. I remember once when I was homeless and I was living on my sponsor's couch, going home, I'd been at a meeting in Flood Street in Chelsea and there were about 80 people there. And they're all very nicely dressed and they came out of the meeting and they were drive, getting into their BMWs and their, whatever it was, driving home. And by the time I, oh, I, mean, I had a resentment while I was in the meeting, but by the time I got home, I had smoke coming out of my ears. And I remember Andre just whispering to me, he said, and this was a man who was 38 years old. So he said to me, Larry, it's a funny thing, you know. He said, I was always a lot more spiritual with a few quid in my pocket. And I thought, yeah, I can relate. It's very easy to be up here. But when you haven't got a roof over your head and you haven't got any food in your tummy, it ain't so easy. Believe me, I know. Anyway, I'm going to read this. This, God love him, this is, this is for Clancy because I think it's wonderful. Pragmatic spirituality. Many of us are familiar with the term spirituality, and we often equate it with prayer and meditation. True enough, but there are a few things that seem to fit this category as well. At any rate, they're worth thinking about. One, do what you said you would do. Two, be where you said you would be. Three, if you open it, close it. Four, if you unlock it, relock it. Five, if you break it, admit it. Six, if you borrow it, return it. Seven, if you make a mess, clean it up. Eight, if you want to use someone's property, ask. Nine, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. Ten, if it will brighten someone's day, say it. Eleven, if it will diminish someone, keep it to yourself. Now, I just think that's wonderful because I didn't do any of that when I was drinking. None of it. And I wasn't capable of any of that. So, yes, prayer and meditation. But it's what we do that gets us well and keeps us sober. I mean, and the bottom line of it all is if I don't pick up the first drink, I can't get drunk and I'm in with the shout. That's it. I'll shut up. Well, they're all right, thanks. Thank you, Larry. Mark, am I in trouble or not? Larry, 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 not at all. Thank you, thank you.